This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. And, you know, that's something I wrote about when I was writing about ransomware is that increasingly, and I don't think I'm going to blow anyone's mind, but like you should just assume a breach. And so if you have, you know, you can have all the good safeguards in the world, but if you don't have any responses once you've been compromised, then you might as well not have a cybersecurity system. And so I think resiliency is really important here. It seems like these banks have had different responses to informing customers that their data might have been compromised or monitoring. And so that'll be really interesting to see. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, the creator of FinTech Takes, and today it is Bank Nerd Corner Day. Uh, This is my first Bank Nerd Corner since returning from paternity leave, and as always, I am thrilled to be joined by the queen of bank nerds herself, Kia Hazlitt. Kia, great to see you again. Hey, Alex. Welcome back. We just had one bank failure while you were gone. (laughs) Um, Maybe you heard of them, First Republic. That's actually pretty good relative to where we were, yeah, before, right? Yeah. It's really slowed down since you went on paternity leave and, you know, nothing since you come back. Yes, yes. No, I'm thrilled by that. And just for the listeners out there, if you've been following along over the last few of these episodes, Key and I have been on a terrible hot streak of discussing news that then is wildly out of date by the time the podcast posts. We are trying to post this podcast a little faster after we record it than we had been. And I also expect, Kia, to your point that, like, the banking news craziness can't keep at this pace forever, right? Like this is just not sustainable. So hopefully we can have a slightly more calm, collected conversation that's not wildly out of date by the time that everyone is hearing this. One piece of interesting and fun news is that you now officially have a new job title at Bank Director. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Thank you so much, Alex. Actually, this is the first day that I am using this new title. I am the fintech and banking editor at Bank Director. We are still looking for an amazing managing editor candidate. Mm -hmm to take my current job, which is also an incredible job. Yeah, I just think that where my focus has gone in banking, the stories that are really grabbing me, some of the trends and themes that I see in banking are increasingly thinking about how technology and digital capabilities are changing how banking is conducted and changing banks themselves. I definitely think that, you know, obviously you've picked up on (laughs) some of my interests as well, given that I'm on your podcast once a month to talk about some of these themes. I was going to say, we're sort of pulling you closer (laughs) into the fintech vortex. This is awesome. I'm going to resist. I'm very still focused (laughs) on banks. Um, So what I think of myself is is kind of like a filter or a funnel that can take a lot of the technology news and trends and, you know, ideas and then apply it to banks. And I think that, you know, banks are really curious about a lot of this stuff, but they're also very much like, Banks are just kind of different animals than fintechs, as we talk about sometimes. And so kind of um, meshing those two cultures or those two mindsets or those two objectives together is something I've been really curious about. So I get to do that more. I'm still going to be writing, hopefully maybe doing some podcasts for Bank Director. Um, Yeah. So and then trying to expand our audience for our Finex Tech platform. Excellent. Okay. Well, perfect. All of you listening, I'm sure are already huge Kia fans. So you'll continue to follow her as she steps more fully into this new role, but very excited to have you even more deeply enmeshed in all things fintech. Yeah. I used to think as a journalist that the dark side was PR, but I actually think the dark side is fintech reporting. True. It's true. It's not untrue. Come to the dark side. We have cookies. It's delightful over here. I feel like you have dragged me much more into bank nerd world. And so 
seeing you sort of uh, dip your toes in the fintech waters a little more is fantastic. And we can't wait to read and listen to all the stuff that you come up with. Well, great. Well, something I wanted to talk to you about, Alex, and I know we're going to talk about your bright future as an investment banker. Of course. But I wanted to start out with the MoveIt vulnerability. Do you know anything about the MoveIt breach? No, I saw that it happened and I know very little about this, but it does seem like a timely topic given that we've just had a sort of update or refresh of the guidelines around third-party risk management, which this would seem to fit squarely into that bucket. So walk us through what happened. Yeah, so I don't use this program called Move It. I assume you don't. I don't think any many of these companies that have been impacted also maybe don't directly use this service. Okay. Move It is a file transfer service from a software corporation. And about a month ago, that was discovered there was a security flaw that oh. had been successfully exploited by hackers. Mm-hmm. More than 140 organizations and government agencies in the U.S. and Europe have had their data stolen as part of this hack. It involves ransom payments to get the data backers had just not have the data released, but mm. it's not ransomware. And experts believe that up to 15.5 million individuals have had some of their information compromised as part of this hack. Wow. The reason why I, you know, you mentioned third party risk is because this is a really good example of what third and fourth party risk looks like mm-hmm. for the banks that have been impacted. They didn't use the service, their vendor, and in this case, their core provider used the service. Core provider FIS Global confirmed that it was one of the targets of the MoveIt hack. So the hackers exploited the vulnerability in MoveIt and then used like what I'm understanding or assuming is found the FIS Global server and started plumbing that little server for the data that server had. Recognizing that FIS has a huge number of banking clients and there's a lot of valuable data there. Yeah, maybe you've heard of them. One of the top three banking Banking core providers. Yeah, I would think that uh, hackers would know and sort of value the opportunity to get inside those walls. So that's what happened. Totally. And the information on a core is like a bank. Like that's all the bank information, right? And so going through some of the filings that impacted banks have shared. Mm -hmm. So there's three community banks. And obviously there should probably be more community banks. And the disclosure, the like how many disclosures should there be relative to the amount of victims has was interesting to me, to say the least. Sure, sure. But so I found three banks, Hilltop, First Merchants, and First Source, have disclosed that their data was stolen off of their vendor's server. So Hilltop said that the compromise meant that substantially all of the bank's customers, including their social security numbers and account numbers, may have been impacted in this. So just basically every piece of information all that you information. Yeah. give a bank to keep private. First source detailed the steps that they had taken after they found out about the breach. So again, we'll talk more about this, but this is just such an interesting way that banks have to respond to this third and fourth party risk. Mm -hmm. So they use their cybersecurity defenses, including patching the software according to what the vendor told them to do, hardening their host server that contained the MoveIt software, and they launched an internal investigation in partnership with outside independent cybersecurity forensics experts. They also are in contact with law enforcement and regulatory authorities. There is a new regulation that banks have to disclose significant cybersecurity incidences to their regulators. Mm -hmm. And so this is now data that's being actively collected. It is not just data that is released. It is, you know, when the hack goes public or when someone's actual credentials are compromised, it's now the incident itself needs to be reported. Mm -hmm. In Europe, Deutsche, Commerce Bank, and ING also had their data stolen when their third-party service provider, 
Majoral, which is an account switching service provider, mm. was hacked. And that data includes clients' names and account numbers. Other companies that aren't banks that had a third party get hacked included Zealous, which was a payroll service provider. So Zealous was hacked. And in that hack, data from the BBC, British Airways, and Boots was stolen. And that's like the employee's data. Sure. So this is so interesting because this is like just a perfect example of third and fourth party risk. Mm -hmm. And kind of the, I don't want to say the helplessness, but there's just, you can't, this is not just something that banks can have a lot of control over. Mm -hmm. They use their core provider. Their core provider uses other vendors to provide essential services. And the bank may not get a say in that relationship. The bank may not know the vendor that is being used. And just to be clear on that, when you say third and fourth party risk, what we're talking about here is the third party in this case is FIS, right? So the yes, bank is the working core, yep. directly with FIS and it's like, okay, we're buying this core system and probably all of these other ancillary services because FIS kind of does everything. But FIS being a software company has their own set of vendors that they work with, software vendors, cybersecurity vendors, data infrastructure vendors, janitors who clean their facilities, like all kinds of different uh, vendors that they work with. All of those are considered to be fourth parties and the guidance provided by regulators. For the bank. They're the fourth party for the right, bank. Right, right, right. <laughs> They're a third party for the FIS, but a fourth party for the bank. And the guidance is structured in such a way as it encourages banks to be both mindful of obviously third party risk where they're evaluating FIS directly, but also to have at least some sense, right, of the vendors that FIS uses and any risks that they may pose. But that's challenging. Yeah, it's I imagine it's not easy to break apart of the services a vendor directly offers and a service a vendor is using and then offering to you. So there's, you know, kind of some investigation and curiosity on that end. The other thing, too, is you can't the due diligence become effort becomes maybe a little diluted mm. the further away it gets from the bank. And you need to then ask your third party vendor what kind of due diligence they do on their fourth party or their third parties. And now your fourth party. Yeah. You know, the guidance that regulators came out with also encourages banks to have a list of their vendors. I think one of the things is you don't know it, you don't know. And so right. it was, is move it for all these banks across the country that maybe use FIS, is move it a known known or a known unknown or an unknown unknown, to quote Henry Kissinger. I will say, having worked at a few of these third-party service providers that sell software to banks, you know, depending on how big those companies are, how many products they offer, how long they've been around, how sort of complex their architecture is, a lot of times the third parties don't know all the third parties they work with, right? So it's like you're a bank and you go to someone like FIS who's massive and has all of these different code bases and all of these different products, many of which rely on external vendors. And you're like, hey, give me a list of all of the third parties that you work with so we can have a list of fourth parties that we're being exposed to here from a risk perspective. I mean, I'm sure FIS does their best to sort of collate all that information and be a helpful partner, but like, there's a limit to really what you can know if you're a big enough company because there's all of these products. A lot of them are acquired, right, from other companies. And so there's the limit to like internal knowledge that you have about these things. And then you find out, oh, my God, we do use this thing. And there's suddenly this vulnerability that maybe you were aware of or maybe some people in the company were aware of, but it wasn't being handled at sort of an enterprise level as a sort of risk factor that we're paying attention to. Oh, completely. And you mentioned that, you know, this idea of products. I don't know how many banks bought the file sharing service product from FIS. They 
the files just might get moved on the F on FIS and you don't know how that magic happens. And then you find out it's move it. And then you have to be like, hey, so how, are you, how is my data? Like, is it on a different server? And I think that this just kind of speaks to some of the complexity that has come from increasingly outsourcing a lot of our functionality and then also the ease of some of this, the integration, the hidden nature of the risk, right? Mm -hmm. And that, to your point, you might not even know how many vendors your vendor uses, your vendor might not know. Mm -hmm. And it just is a really wide web. And it kind of leads to like, for me, a feeling of helplessness to be like, well, I'm kind of surprised this doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> right, right. And right. I think, you know, regulators are concerned about things like this happening all the time, especially thinking about the type of information that's stored on a core. Yeah. You can't just keep all that information, the account numbers, the social security numbers inside the bank itself. It does reside on this like very important vendor. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we've talked about before third-party risk management being sort of an expansive umbrella that new things like banking as a service and fintech partnerships are also being put under. But this is like classic third-party risk management, right? That regulators have thought about for a long time. This is like, <laughs> like cybersecurity is like the core thing that, you know, the OCC and the Fed and the FDIC, like they all worry about this exact thing happening. And so, right. yeah, from a timing perspective, it's interesting that like they just unified this guidance and kind of updated it. And the core of it is still make sure that this exact thing doesn't happen or do everything you can to mitigate the risk of this. And I think you make a really good point that like there's a limit to what we can do, right? I mean, like th there are these massive core providers you sort of have to use them, particularly if you're like a smaller community bank, like you're not going to build all of this technology yourself. That's not feasible. They all work with one of the core providers, mostly and not to, you know, sort of be too mean about it, but they don't usually like the core providers that much. Like it's kind of a love hate relationship that they have, but it's necessary. And, you know, I also don't necessarily think that any of the sort of due diligence was necessarily a failure on the part of someone like an FIS? Because again, like mm -hmm. their software is complex. They work with thousands of sort of subcontractors. Well, or, this vulnerability is move it. Right. But the question I think for banks going forward is yeah. you need to ask your vendor, so your core, what they are doing to protect your data. So was there anything that FIS could have done to short of not using move it right. to keep customer data safe. Mm -hmm. And that's the question that banks need to answer or get some documentation around. And, you know, I think First Merchants also said like they're working with their vendor to investigate the, this issue. And then they're reviewing their existing policies and procedures regarding their vendor services and working to evaluate additional measures and safeguards. So there's only so much you can do. But this is, again, fourth party risk, but everyone needs to kind of make sure there's resiliency and resistance yeah. and kind of an ability to isolate compromised systems. And, you know, that's something I wrote about when I was writing about ransomware is that increasingly, and I don't think I'm going to blow anyone's mind, but like you should just assume a breach. Yeah. And so if you have, you know, you can have all the good safeguards in the world, but if you don't have any responses once you've been compromised, then you might as well not have a cybersecurity system. Right. And so I think resiliency is really important here. It seems like these banks have had different responses to yeah. informing customers that their data might have been compromised or monitoring. And so that'll be really interesting to see. Well, it kind of goes to your point about how many have we not heard about yet that maybe should have been disclosed. Oh, like yeah, earnings. Let's, yeah, let's get yeah. it. 
and and that's I gotta think come that's, up. <laughs> I mean, that's and it's a great point, right? Because it's like, yeah, I mean, obviously FIS was a core target in this attack, which is logical. They would be a good one to go after. And I'm sure there probably are other banks that we haven't heard about yet, but I think you're exactly right. Like in a world where data breaches are sort of inevitable, the resiliency and the response and the immediacy of that is just as important or maybe even more important than the steps you take to prevent it because there is a limit to what we can do to stop these things. Yeah. And then a little update to this story is this hack happened more than a month ago. Yeah. And then and Move It put out a patch. Mm-hmm. And then a couple weeks later, another vulnerability was discovered in the system. Uh-huh. And so Move It had to put out a second patch. And so I think there is it speaks to kind of some of the monitoring, the vigilance and the importance of patching. Mm-hmm. That is something that has come up again also in my cybersecurity ransomware reporting is that I don't always update my phone or my laptop <laughs> right. when the update comes out. But it's really, really important that you do that because that's where the patches come in. Right. And someone at the bank, that's part of the resiliency, right? Some of the bank needs to be monitoring this and making sure that just you're constantly, constantly like covering the holes that are discovered. But yeah, so we'll see what happens going forward with Move It. I don't know if community banks are the biggest targets of the data. I don't know if that's like where the hackers are thinking they're going to make their most amount of money. But it looks like a lot of data has been swept up in this. And I would suspect we're going to have to see more disclosures from banks and other companies as Ernie's comes out. Yeah, no, totally agree. And I think the other thing to sort of just monitor over the long term is um, the ransoming the data back to people is one way to monetize it. It's far from the only way to monetize it. And a lot of this data can be used in the cultivation of new synthetic identities and identity theft. And so it'll be interesting. I mean, it sounds like this was the work of a sort of dedicated group that was sort of exploiting this attack. But, you know, there are probably multiple ways that we'll see this data end up getting exploited. And watching for sort of the breadcrumbs of that will also be kind of a long tail on the story. Totally. All right. Well, Alex, I wanted to ask you about your future career as an investment banker. Because um, now you're like low-key an expert on bank pricing and bank m and And that feels like just a culmination of my work. It is. Trying to explain bank pricing to you. So yeah. what, okay. what's new in bank m and Well, all right. So just by way of a little bit of like history, because he is teasing me. But last year when we got some time to suspend in person together, I think I asked you, well, why are there not like a lot of bank acquisitions happening? And you had this whole answer, which we'll get into in a second. But there's like a very clear reason why. Fast forward to today, obviously, we've had some bank failures. Uh, There's been a lot of sort of volatility. The sort of stress imposed by rising rates has sort of worked its way through the industry. And we're now sort of seeing the effects of that much more clearly than I think maybe we were six to nine months ago. But that hasn't stopped a series of articles popping up in the Wall Street Journal and CNBC and other places, many of which, Kia, you've sort of flagged for me that are basically making the case that there's about to be an explosion of M&A deals in the banking space. Just to quote one specific story that was in the Wall Street Journal that I think made both of our heads sort of explode, says, quote, the industry is poised to consolidate at a pace unseen in years. If July's earnings announcements revive fears of fleeing depositors, the push to merge may turn urgent. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen predicted that higher rates may lead to more deals and bank regulators are signaling that they are open to them. So I find this, I don't know, like PR campaign to sort of like position like, oh man, we're right on the cusp of a lot of M&A activity, get ready. I find it to be a little strange because every time I read these stories, 
there's this sort of like broad perspective on, well, okay, what might drive bank M&A activity? Well, some banks are under stress, obviously, from an earnings perspective. They may be facing sort of higher cost of funding or fleeing depositors. Their net interest margins may be under pressure, blah, 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 all the things we've been talking about. And because of those concerns and because of maybe some of the bank failures that we've had, maybe regulators are a little bit more open to theoretically the idea of approving more bank mergers, which they haven't necessarily been over the last couple of years. Blah, blah, blah. That's sort of like the overarching point being made in these articles. But that seems to ignore some very specific and important realities that would, in my mind at least, prevent really the stampede of M&A activity. And, you know, Kia, you're more the expert on some of these blockers than I am, but I think the first one I wanted to talk about and get your thoughts on is there's kind of just an accounting problem here. And this is what we talked about back in January, but like, can you sort of walk us through just like purely from an accounting perspective, and we'll get into some of the other things that may make this not so realistic, but like purely from an accounting perspective, what would be the thing that would stop M&As right now? Yeah, buckle up, nerds. Here we go. Ooh. So, you know, banks, they sell for a certain amount of money. Yes. And that sell price reflects the value of their assets and the premium on the deposits. And then, you know, just like a little bit of like, like a little premium to like just sweeten the deal. And just to be clear for our fintech audience, when we say like a little bit of premium on top of the deal, that is in no way the way that like tech company acquisitions work where you're Yeah, evidently not. Oh, this is like an acquisition. We're valuing them a 20x. But no, banks have like, like a tangible book value. Like yes. all of their assets can be valued. They have a market value. Yes. Everything no. and everything can be sold. Yeah. And right, priced right. and sold. So so and, you're literally valuing all the things that are sitting in the store, so to speak. Right. Right. Yeah. And so um some of those assets include bank bonds or bonds. So banks have security portfolios. Historically, that's been anywhere between like 10 and like 40% of the bank's total assets would be in bonds. Yep. And in 2020, when kind of lending fell off a cliff in the coronavirus, a lot of banks ended up buying, taking some of the deposits from the stimulus and buying bonds, which are seen as very safe from a credit perspective. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the return of a safe asset is often pretty low and interest rates were also really low in 2020 and 21. And so they had all these safe assets paying just a little bit of yield. And then as interest rates rose, bond yields fall because new bonds pay more than, you know, similar bonds that were issued a year ago or purchased a year ago. And so that's all fine and good. You know, we, I think everyone is now a bond expert because yes. of Silicon Valley Bank, as <laughs> I've been led to believe. Yep. But what that actually means for M&A mm -hmm. and where we saw this fastest in Banking. So SVB is March 2023. We actually start seeing the impact of the value of those bonds, the declining value of those bonds as early as I would say second half 2022 and right. definitely third quarter 2022. Yep. And what happens is those bonds are now less, they have lost value relative to their yield, um, their par value. So their resale value has dropped. Right. So on the value front, the thing that's interesting about this and kind of blew my mind the first time you told me about this, well, why are there no you know, acquisitions happening is you as the bank holding these bonds, as you say, they're very safe from an asset perspective. Yes. So if you could just hang on to them. Right. Uh, They'll just pay off. They just pay off eventually and you don't and then end up losing any money on them. You don't However, have to record a loss you on don't have to, that. Right. You don't have to record a loss on them. You only have to record a loss if either 
you sell them in the case of all of your depositors fleeing, for example. Right. Maybe or, you're like selling them. Yeah. Right. So that's one way that you'd lose money on them is if you have to sell them at a loss to cover withdrawals. Or the other way would be if you have to account for them at market value when you're being acquired by someone else, correct? Yes. And so the acquirer is just going to pay, like, they're going to have to value all the assets at fair value. And then they apply their little premium to, like, sweeten the deal to get mm-hmm. you to sell. Mm-hmm. But sellers seem to not want to recognize that loss because it impacts directly the sell price. It This has directly impacted the tangible book value of banks if they sell. And so the first place we see rising interest rates impacting banks is in bank M&A because it is, it's just buyers and sellers can't agree to a deal price. Mm-hmm. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, like if you don't have to sell Why would you take a price that's below book that discounts you for assets that are technically safe? I don't blame them. And then I also don't blame any acquirer who wants to overpay for assets that they will have to immediately mark down. Right. So so so, from the buyer's perspective, they're basically looking at it and going, look, I can't, you know, I can't recognize this loss on my books. That's not going to work for me. Right. Because or if I recognize the loss. I need to, pay, that needs to be in the purchase price. Right. I need to factor that in. Right. I need to buy this uh, basically at a fire sale. And then from the seller's perspective, from the company being acquired, they're looking at it and going, well, there's no way I'm selling myself at a discount when you and I both know there's nothing wrong with these there's assets. There's nothing wrong with these. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's always interesting when accounting really actually changes people's incentives. Right. Because I do think these articles are correct. There are a lot of variables that would lead you to think that we're about to enter a period where banks might be under more stress and sell. Mm-hmm. I will say that, like, I think historically banks tend to sell when valuations are high and they don't like to sell when valuations are low. Right. I think most people try to sell, you know, most stock buyers, most yep. home buyers or home sellers stock sellers, they sell when prices are high. And so that's kind of, it's like just a counter-cyclical narrative there. But I don't think they are wrong in pointing out the amount of environmental factors that are very challenging for banks. I just think they kind of come to the wrong conclusion. Right, right. Well, that's the thing that was killing me, right, is that like, yeah, they're right. And particularly, I think the regulatory encouragement is one that can kind of nudge people in a particular direction, right? Like if regulars like, yeah, you know, be a little bit, my life would be easier if I had fewer of these sort of zombie banks shuffling around. Like, and we'll get into like the difference between distressed sales versus non distressed sales. But I think that like there are these sort of larger factors that are like, oh, yeah, all things being equal, this would maybe encourage more MA to be happening. So that part of the analysis isn't wrong necessarily, but it just like mechanically kind of can't happen right now. Right. And it's not just the bonds that are currently underwater, but there's also even concerns about other assets. Yeah. And I want to underline to just a really quick data point that's missing out of all of those articles is how many deals have actually happened, right. which is like a pretty knowable number. So this is through the end of May. S&P found that there were only 32 bank deals announced for the first five months of the year. That's less than half of the 66 deals that were announced in the same period last year. Ah. And then in Q2 to Q4, so missing Q1 2019. So Q2 Q through Q4 2019, there were 253 bank deals. You Whoa. should. There are about 5% of all banks tend to go away every year. And then, you know, I've written about this before too. What we also don't see in the banking industry anymore is de novos. There used to be about 100 new banks a year. 
Over the last 10 years, there's been about 100 new banks total. So we're also missing about 1,500 banks. There's like 1,500 banks that should exist that don't um, based on historical trends. Yeah, like this is like the birth rate in a country dropping yes. basically to zero. And it's like, why is our population shrinking? Well, it's like, yeah, people are dying, yes. But also there's no one being born. Yeah, no new bo- banks are being born. And a lot of these articles, one, don't mention how many bank m is actually happening, which again, back to my point, it's just not happening. Mm-hmm. There could not be fewer bank deals right now. But they also tend to focus very weirdly on how many banks are in the U.S. as if like, which is funny because there are, like the amount of banks in the U.S. is high, but it's never been lower. Right. Um, so, right. you know, like if if you think this number is really high, it's just look like what there was 10 years ago. And it seems like they just constantly discover how many banks are in the U.S. And then they're oh. like, well, they're just that's just too many. And so some of them have to go away. Like that just seems to kind of be the logic. Right. Right. Whereas if you've been paying attention for a long time, you're like, wow, we don't have very many banks anymore. So yeah, it's there's, like, yeah, like no, this is a new problem that we only have 4,800 banks. Yeah, you should have, yeah. honestly, closer to 6,000, if you think about it. Right. 5% going away and then 100 new banks coming online every year. Right, right. And that's just like recent history, not even going back decades where there's been tons of consolidation. So no, I mean, I think that's a really good point. And so it all sort of tees up this question, which is, when do we actually see bank M&A pick up? Like, again, probably like... <laughs> The whole broken clock is right twice a day thing. Like, yes, eventually there will be more M&A. That's just sort of cyclically probably something that will be true. But like if we think about it in terms of like things that are sort of mechanically blocking M&A from happening, what are some of those things that might get unblocked? And I think that, you know, this is where I want to sort of draw the distinction between, again, not a distinction that's being captured in these articles, but the difference between whole bank M&A and failed bank M&A. Yeah, or assisted bank M&A. I mm-hmm. think these articles, in my reading and your reading, we can't seem to tell which kind of bank M&A they're talking about. It, well, they're kind of when blending I, them together, right? Because yes. they talk about, they reference like SVB and they reference First Republic in the stories, but they don't draw this clear distinction between like, those were banks that went through a process because they had to be acquired. They weren't like whole bank healthy M&As. Yeah, so when... You know, I think from an industry perspective, when you talk about bank M&A, it's actually assumed that you're talking about whole bank M&A, live bank M&A, unassisted. Assisted deals are radically different. I think, you know, I've joked with you before that I think the FDIC is too good at failing banks because in the great financial crisis, despite it being a very unstable period of time, there were a lot of failed bank deals. And most of that, you know, the hundreds of them that happened, most people did not notice, did not register them. Um, they were just processed really quickly and subsumed into the new bank. And obviously these deals are like an assisted bank deal and the transaction and the bidding and how the whole transaction is handled is radically different. But the reason why I think these articles pay so much attention to the idea that banks are pressured and Mm. challenged and would sell because they are challenged is because I think they see potentially more zombie banks that are lumping along under, you know, liquidity pressures, or they seem maybe more banks susceptible to liquidity pressures or to a completely crushed NIM. Think like what First Republic looked like for the six weeks that it was still operating. And they believe or they want (laughs) regulators to deal with this. And I think that, I think there is a big appetite for failed bank deals. One, there's been no deals. And so this might be the only way to, when you fail a bank, to get the valuation correct. Like, because the bank, the in a failed bank, it's an auction. They the banks that want right. to buy 
this failed bank, they get to submit a bid to the FDIC. And the bid actually includes what they would acquire from the FDIC and Mm -hmm. what they want to leave behind. And then Mm -hmm. it puts like a value on it. Mm -hmm. And you can build a discount. And you actually have an incentive here to, you know, one, to like win the deal. Yeah. But to be accurate in your marks, because this is now your problem. Like you're going to just take on someone else's problems. And right now, like I think the, you know, First Republic's the deal of a lifetime because they also didn't have credit problems and they had like this amazing customer base. Right. But I mean, but the the core point you're making is that like the, when it's a failed bank, the FDIC has a different set of incentives than the bank leadership if they were Oh, completely. (laughs) Like it's, it's totally, totally different. And there's like, there's, what is the rational incentive? And then there's what's the sort of emotional incentive, right? So like the emotional incentive, and I think this is to your point about why we don't see more bank M&As in sort of downtimes when valuations are down is, you know, much like homeowners, they're like, oh, it'll bounce back, right? Like there's this yeah. level of irrationality that you have if you're in control of this asset going like, oh, it's definitely worth more than this. Like we can wait this out. The um, fictional example of this is Lehman Brothers in, if you've ever watched like one of the movies made about the great financial crisis, like they were just utterly- like margin call or something? Yeah, yeah. And they were just like utterly irrational about like, oh, no, you know, we're not going to sell, like we're worth more than this. And they ended up, you know, getting sold in the fires that were just kind of going under. But that's like the irrational, emotional part of it. When the FDIC comes in and takes over the bank, that's a very different set of incentives, right? Because they want to get the uh, depositors protected. They want to transfer all the assets over to another bank. They have a mandate legally to get the best deal possible, but it's not. there's not that same level of irrationality of like, oh, we'll hold out for a better deal. That's not how those work. Yeah, the FCAC is legally mandated to accept the bid that is the least cost to the deposit insurance fund. Right. And again, the marks on some of these assets that, and right now we are in a 5% high interest rate environment. Like that's why bond yields fell. Mm -hmm. But this also applies, the same like fair value also accounting also applies to all of the fixed rate loans that a bank has that are also, that have also lost yield as rates have risen. And so I both don't think like it's not going to get easier to be a bank for the next 12 months is my guess. I think, you know, there might be some more interest rate hikes. I think deposit costs are still increasing based on, I think, my understanding of their bond portfolios. Most of those bonds are not three-year bonds. They are five to 10-year bonds that they're dealing with. And so you asked in our outline what would get the M&A to be unblocked for Mm -hmm. live bank M&A, I assume. And honestly, I think we're in a waiting game and interest rates are going to have to fall or there's got to be some... I don't, you know, I've I've been team bond res- portfolio restructuring, but I think that's kind of off the table after yeah. Silicon Valley completely failed to be able to restructure their bonds. But it just sort of spooks people, right? Like to your point about the the bond restructuring thing is like there is a mechanical way to yeah. sort of work your way out of it gently over time. But right. when SVB tried to do that, maybe a little clumsily, that was a big part of what spooked the market and caused the run, right? And I think the other thing too is these unrealized losses are included in the tangible common equity ratio. And so we're having this. So the thing about NSVB restructured their bonds, they had to book the loss of $2 billion on $21 billion of available for sale securities. Yeah. But right now you can see banks across the industry that might have low TCE ratios because of this unrealized loss, but high capital regulatory ratios, like other tier one, like all these mm-hmm. other ratios. And so it's kind of creating a weird thing in the industry where you could have like 1% TCE 
but like 9% tier one. And there are some ways where like that's going to impact banks and potentially contribute to more bank failures, which then would lead to more assisted M&A as, you know, we haven't had one of those deals since May. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it could happen in the next week before we publish this podcast. But like, no, I mean, so kind of to your point on those ones, just to be clear, one of the things that happens when those ratios get sort of out of whack or another way of this happens is if, you know, examiners at the regulators sort of downgrade the overall sort of level of health of the bank using that wonderful acronym that you shared with me, I think last time we recorded CAMELS, the consequence of that one of the consequences is that they lose access to some of the sort of backup liquidity options that they have, right? Yeah. So, and we actually, we know that this happened with First Republic, that, yeah. so Camel's one of the ratings is liquidity, and one of them is earnings, so interest rate risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have a high liquidity rating, you get to borrow from the discount window. Also, if you have positive TCE, you can borrow from the FHLB. So you have, these are two important sources of backup liquidity. If you have negative tangible common equity, you need to receive a waiver from your regulator to continue borrowing from the FHLB. And as we know, the FHLB is now an important backup source of liquidity. It is known as the second lender of second to last resorts because people banks prefer to borrow from it instead of the discount window. But if you have a downgrade in your liquidity and you are not seen as a good liquid bank anymore, you have constraints on your ability to borrow from the Federal Reserve and you now have to go into the secondary line of credit and there are different collateral. And we know that First Republic received this downgrade and was no longer able to continue borrowing from the BTFP. And that is actually the reason why they failed. That was a mechanic that regulators used to close the bank was to cut off its liquidity. Right, right. So it kind of is this like sliding slope where once you get to a certain point, it's like, throw me the rope. And it's like, actually, no, I think you're a little too far for us to like really like keep doing this. So there is definitely a it's not just the like, oh, my God, some crazy thing happened online where everyone got freaked out and pulled all their money right away. Like we've seen that version of it happen, Mm -hmm. but a different version of it, which I think First Republic is a good example of, is more the slow slide slide. towards a place where you just can't crawl your way back out. And at that point, it just becomes inevitable. And the other thing, too, that's really important is that that gives regulators enough time to start shopping the bank around. Right. So So it's not just over a weekend. You can do it a little. Right. I know it looks like it's over a weekend, but I guarantee you they were in that bank scanning stuff, uploading it to the data room, soliciting bids. And those bidders, you know, submitted multiple bids. And we know that JP Morgan won because in part because JP Morgan is big enough to take on most of the bank and at the least cost to the FDIC. Awesome. Okay, so that covers, I think, M&A pretty well. Um, I think you have a bright future in investment banking when M&A picks up. I wouldn't start your career now. No, I'm fine right now with the newsletter. But once it picks up, call me because I am definitely an expert in all things investment banking and M&A. So with that, we're going to transition now to our quick wait, but why? So this is sort of a question that may come up in some of the things we've been looking at around just coverage of what's being discussed in banking right now. Something that's kind of confusing to us or like, wait, why are we saying that? Or why is that maybe true? So Kia, you have a good one that I think is going to set me off. Yeah, Alex, my question for you is, Mm. will faster payments make bank balance sheets more fragile? Okay, so allow me to uh, rant about this topic. This was the subject of another Wall Street Journal article that was written about 
FedNow, which is one of the new faster payment systems that's about to come online. And the general sort of takeaway, or one of them was that the speed at which money can move, going from ACH and the sort of batch process that we're used to, to a fully sort of real-time 24-7, 365 instant payment rail, which is what FedNow is going to provide, will that sort of speed and lack of like off hours, meaning holidays, weekends, whatever, will that sort of make the banking ecosystem more fragile? And will it sort of make the potential problems around deposits flowing out of these banks, will it sort of exacerbate that problem more? And the contention in this WSJ article was that it will make it more fragile and that there are bank analysts and other observers who are worried about this. I had sort of a tough time reconciling that, right? Um, Kia, you had shared with me a while ago uh, an academic paper talking about the sort of rise of what they called bank walks, which is to say not a bank run necessarily sparked by some moment of like sheer panic, but just the sort of change in convenience for customers of banks to move their money out of a bank now that we all have digital banking and mobile banking, the ability to do this while sitting on our couch. And the just sort of pressure that puts on a bank's deposit franchise and the way they have to sort of think about their overall liquidity and position and ability to handle kind of money movement moving out of the bank. I totally buy the convenience argument, right? It's much, much more convenient to pull your money out of a bank than it used to be. You can do it from your phone rather than doing it from, you know, the branch where you have to go down and it's just kind of a hassle. So you're really only going to do that if like, you know, for a fact that your bank is going under. The convenience part I understand. And I think that is something that as an industry, we all have to sort of reckon with and kind of deal with that challenge. The thing I don't understand quite as much is why is the difference between a customer initiating a transfer on their phone, say over the weekend, and having that process, that payment actually be processed on Monday via kind of traditional ACH, why is that substantially better than the customer initiating the payment and the payment just happening immediately, right? Like we talk a lot about the value of float in financial services and the ability to sort of hang on to money for an additional couple of days and what that allows you to do. And I understand the benefit of float from like a revenue perspective, but I'm kind of, I guess, maybe shocked that those two days of float might make such a difference that an otherwise sort of healthy bank might find itself in a position where it has a liquidity crisis. So what was your sort of take on, I know you read this article and have been thinking about this, like what, what's your take on this concern about speed? You know, I have this experience sometimes where I read an article and then I am like, wait, am I reading that the way that it works in my head is so radically different than the problems that I'm reading here? And this is one of those <laughs> yeah. moments where you know, in my head, money should move pretty quickly. Yeah. And I'm realizing that if money moved as quickly as it moves in my head, that might be a problem for banks. And then I had I went down this rabbit hole of like, well, why would it be a problem for banks? And like, you know, does it really all come down to this problem of flow or maybe cash on hand yeah. that banks, you know, have really tried to like put all of the money to work and really carefully, carefully kept their like cash on hand, very tailored to these, the regular cadence of money going in and out of the bank. So they can always, so they don't have to borrow, you know, do wholesale borrowings and then, but they can maximize every single dollar. 
And then right. you want to live on that edge as close right. as that's the job, basically. And yeah. and that but that would be radically destabilizing if just they weren't allowed to do that or if they had to stop building in their assumption of a float to have this money movement. And I also find myself really reacting to the fact that like the idea that banks may not want to offer innovation in the form of like faster access to your money. Yeah for their purposes mm-hmm. that they're like that to me seems like our incentives as a bank customer who wants to maybe receive payments faster or send payments faster maybe because i need my float and i've got a bill that's due that needs to be like received by a certain day but i need the money and so i need that money to get there like when i send it and not a, a moment sooner well and that's a i think that's a really good point right because like when i initiate a transfer you kind of can't impose a value judgment as the bank on my transfer as a customer, right? Like, yeah, like you, that's you my go, money. Well, yeah, you can't go like, um, well, no, you can't have that because if you're just panicking and pulling your money out, we can't have a bank run happen. So we're going to like, you know, put a little bit of friction in this process and make it a little harder. Okay, fine. That I guess would be valid if that's what I was doing, but you don't know that. I could be just moving money because I have to get this money for something that's important to me. And as you point out, it's my money. Right. And so I just think that I'm fascinated by how, you know, digital technology, including access, convenience and speed has changed banking, has changed some of the calculus in banking. I think we're learning with SVB and Signature. There were a lot of assumptions around the stability of money, which you and I have definitely talked about. And there was a complacency in their lack of backup of like finding and testing backup liquidity facilities. Um, You and I have also talked about some of these backup liquidity facilities move a lot slower than money moving out of the bank. And I actually do think that there's an issue of timing in that regard, that if customers can withdraw their money a lot faster, but the bank, when it is a customer and needs backup liquidity, receives that money a lot slower, that might change some of the calculus that they need. I you know, I think that everyone has to just manage their liquidity. I'm sorry that you know banks have to manage their liquidity. Maybe. Well, and, um, and, in the same way we do, no, totally, <laughs> and figure out totally. the timing. I, I think that's exactly right, right? I mean, like, I don't get to cry to someone about, oh, you know, I overdrew my account because I was trying to keep every single dollar in my savings account earning. I had a couple of floats going and one sank. <laughs> what I, actually, I was, right at the edge and trying to optimize every dollar. Whoops, I screwed up. You know, I mean, like, I think one way of thinking about the sort of shift that we're in the middle of, right, and mobile banking and digital banking and more convenient access is a part of it, I do think after having talked this out and thought about it, speed is a part of it as well, like how fast the money moves and how much float is built in versus not required. But I think it's interesting that like as we sort of modernize the technology for banking, that might actually force banks in a weird way from a business perspective to be more conservative, right? Like maybe you just have to have more cash on hand. Maybe you can't live as close to the edge as you were used to doing because, you know, your customers are just more empowered to move quickly. And, you know, it seems like all of the assumptions we have around like deposit behavior, deposit betas, which deposits are sticky, like all of these things are being kind of smashed with a baseball bat. And I feel like we've not really reconciled like what's the new reality yet. Yeah, I think increasingly time is influencing different aspects of banking in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that the speed that money moves in people's heads is really fast. And the speed that money actually moves across like our little wires and pipes and uh, the plumbing in banking is really is like actually pretty slow. And that there's a lot of work to reconcile and bring those two together. 
I also wonder, too, across a bank platform, if banks are receiving their data fast enough to actually better match their liquidity needs. So if I use the online banking platform to transfer money out of the bank, and I transfer all of my money out of the bank, and the bank just immediately like lets me do that you know, on the Fed now wire. And then at the end of the day, they get the report that I did that. And, oh, you've got to like just make sure you can cover that all of her money left the bank. That time seems pretty important. I think about you know Silicon Valley Bank um, had $42 billion of withdrawals between March 8th and March 9th. Regulators work all night on March 9th to cover the $42 billion. And then, you know, in the reporting, I don't know if this is real, but in the reporting, they open on March 10th and see $100 billion of withdrawal. Is that when you want to find out that the next number is $100 billion? No. Yeah, I'm so glad you wait, asked but that, But why right? was that number not being relayed on March 9th? Why did they have to wait till after midnight to get that number? Yeah, I mean, that I think is a great question. And it, it kind of relates to, as you're saying, like, just the way these different systems are structured and like the data that the systems pass back and forth to each other. Because, yeah, I mean, that difference between clearance and settlement, and obviously, you know, something like FedNow basically shrinks that down to zero. But like, yeah, you have the data, right? Like if Alex moves out all of his money and initiates that transfer on, you know, Friday night or on Saturday morning, as soon as I initiate that, you know the money's gone. Right. Like you should know the money is gone. Someone knows that the money and someone in the bank knows that the money yeah, is gone. Yeah. Some system is registering like, hey, the money is gone. But if that data is not getting passed along, going, hey, we don't have this money anymore. Like technically, yes, we do have it, but we actually don't have it. And we need to be prepared for that on Monday. I think that's a really good point. And then I did mention this in a, a newsletter that I wrote about this story, but we do need to think about like, okay, if you have that signal, hey, this money is gone over the weekend, this happened. Yeah, like the discount window, the FHLB, like all of these sort of backup liquidity options that we have, you know, go read some of the reporting on how like, you know, SVB was trying to navigate those different institutions, you know, during this window in order to try to save their bank. Like it, it was pretty antiquated and there was posting of collateral and there was running. You have to call the Fed's discount. I did not, I like, I know we've talked about the Fed discount window. I learned you have to call the Fed yeah. during Hours you can call people at work. Business hours, yeah. And then that's how you arrange your loan. You don't go on. You, there's no online lending. It's wild. Yeah, there's. I mean, yeah, the Fed doesn't do online lending. So, yeah, I mean, I think that another takeaway from this is FedNow is great. And, you know, customers need FedNow and need real-time payments. The Fed could also modernize some of the other systems that banks use, that their bank customers use, because um, some of that does seem a little antiquated. Should we get to the last one? Yes, this is our potentially unanswerable question. Is okay. Which so I think you have today. I do. My potentially unanswerable question for you, Kia, is are fintechs actually winning the deposits war? Okay. So this is uh your former colleague Ron Shevlin's yep. study from Cornerstone Advisors that talks about where Americans are opening checking accounts, which I guess is, to me, kind of like cute that we're focusing on checking accounts. But he found that 14% of Americans have opened a checking account this year. And of those, digital banks and fintechs captured nearly half. So 47% of all accounts opened in 2023. And the share of new checking accounts that are going to mega banks has fallen from, let me see, Megabanks was 24 to 17, and regional banks is 27 to 21. And this story got 
like a lot of play in the fintech press. And I found I was just one, I read the story and then I didn't think anything of it. And then when I saw it, all the attention it was getting, I felt that I was feeling a little that this is overrated. Mm. And I was feeling a little confused because I did not realize that the hottest product in the banking space right now is a checking account mm. and that it is seen would be somehow significant that most of the activity is going to fintechs, which, oh, by the way, are not banks. And so that the checking account is actually going to a bank. It is just ostensibly being managed by a fintech. And so I was kind of confused by both the interest of the significance of the relationship or the activity itself. Mm -hmm. And then also see like the pitting of the banks versus the fintechs and, you know, just kind of understanding that like checking accounts are loss leader products for most banks. Yeah. They're often like how a bank starts a relationship, but it's not really how the bank makes money from a relationship. It kind of felt like, oh, I guess like. Some people still care about interchange, which again, this is kind of my like, this is kind of cute article because I I just did not see this as maybe an area where a lot of banks are even paying attention or trying to gain market share. So Alex, like how hot are checking accounts right now? Did you open a new checking account in 2023 and was it at a fintech? Actually, yes and yes. Oh my God. So, okay, well, yeah, uh, yes, and then a qualified yes, because the company that I opened it with, which I will not name, is a fintech company, but they now have a bank charter. And oh, okay, so, yeah, yeah, I've heard yeah, of Yeah, yeah, so you, you take your guess. But um, I think it kind of speaks to the core point you're making, which is like fintechs and banks are just in wildly different businesses, right? And I think this finding really stresses like we just have different goals, right? And so like a question I was sort of, yeah, it's like chess around. and checkers. That's not how I read it. Well, yeah, like, yeah, chess and checkers, I think, is a good way of thinking about it, right? Because it's like, if you're a fintech company and you read this, are you happy? Yes, you are, right? Because you don't do any lending. You don't have a bank charter. All the money that you make predominantly is on, you know, interchange revenue for debit cards. And so the fact that you are capturing more of those new accounts which are going to lead to more customers spending money on debit cards, theoretically. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully, is potentially a good thing for you. It's validating that, as Ron laid out in his article, most of those new accounts are being opened by younger customers. So you're capturing the next wave of consumers. You're playing a longer game, blah, blah, blah. So like, I think that's the fintech view on it is, this is great. Like we're, we're winning. You're we're getting the win. banks. Yeah. yeah. And like we're getting the next generation of customers and they're getting the exact product that we have. They're getting the only product we have. Right. Banks, though, like the question, the other question is like, should banks be worried about this? What should a bank think when they see this? And I think to your point, by and large, it's probably not terribly concerning to banks. Right. Because checking accounts by themselves provide very little value to banks, even as a mechanism for drawing and deposits. Checking accounts are not nearly as valuable as savings accounts, CDs, the weird little sort of niche kind of deposit products that no one ever moves money out of, like a homeowner association checking accounts and all yes, of the like things we talked about. Yeah. So like there are other ways you can build a good deposits franchise outside of competing for checking accounts with, by the way, young consumers who don't really have a lot of money. Famously anyway. not wealthy. Yeah. And you already have all of these older consumers that are where people are keeping a lot of their money. So I think from the bank perspective, you can look at it and go, okay, is anyone actually moving money into these accounts? Are they transacting with these accounts? 
Are these the customers that we want? Are we losing any of the customers that we want to these companies? Is money moving over to them? And I think all of those things are just questions that are very fair to ask because, as you point out, banks make money on lending. And as long as they have sufficient liquidity and they have demand for their loans, this is an interesting trend, but not necessarily something to be concerned about. The only thing, and I'd love your reaction to this, the only thing I would be concerned about if I was a bank looking at this really is that next generation of consumer thing is real. So like, will some of these fintech companies be able to scale into full-size competitors to me and be able to retain these customers because when they were 18, they got used to the idea of having a SoFi checking account and being a SoFi customer and SoFi can continue to grow. And by the way, SoFi is one of those companies that now has a bank charter and can theoretically compete with us on a broader level. So the like capturing the next generation of hearts and minds is one thing I'd be concerned about. And then the other one is just, uh, and Ron sort of referenced this in his research, the falling level of customers across generations that consider traditional banks their primary checking account provider. And when you ask a consumer, who's your primary checking account provider, there's a little bit of sort of ambiguity in that question. But I would also be potentially concerned with the idea that, yeah, maybe they're not closing the account that they have with me, but the mind share is moving over to these other accounts and there's probably value associated with that. Yeah, I think that I'm more curious about the what's next part of this. So yeah. who doesn't get the checking account and who does? And what is the next step of each of those players? Mm -hmm. So I just feel like fintechs, one, they don't even have access to the deposits. Um, so right. like actually, Bass banks are doing really well in the right. Cycle, right. And we know that the Bass banks, um, according to S and P Global analysis of their list of Bass banks, the Bass banks recorded a median deposit growth of four percent in the first quarter, whereas all community banks posted a median deposit growth of zero point two percent. And then so that's where the fintech deposits are going. Right. So and the fintech deposits are going to a subset of community yeah. banks. Yeah. And then compared to all community banks. So this is a deposit raising vehicle for those banks versus so that I think it's kind of confusing to say that the fintechs got the deposits when they didn't get the deposits. They got potential access to the interchange that might come from the deposit relationships, but they did not receive the deposits themselves. And to be fair, Ron wasn't, I think, saying in the article that they got the deposits, just that they got the accounts and then obviously the revenue and the value of those accounts gets kind of divided out. But it's a good point, right? right? That like these community banks, who I think he said didn't really lose share in terms of new account openings, but they were kind of low to begin with. So they just sort yeah, of- Yeah, I think for, I feel like most consumer accounts go to the biggest banks. I think that that's probably the a standard assumption of where do consumer accounts go? And then, so I don't know if it's always super fair to also compare consumer account opening activity at fintech to all community banks. Because they're not playing in that game for the most part. Oftentimes not. Yeah, they're probably banking the small businesses. And maybe there might be a more interesting comparison between fintechs that bank small businesses and community banks. And I also just, you know, I think being a bank, you have a lot of tools in your toolbox to become someone's primary financial provider. There's even something to be said about not being someone's primary financial provider, but still making money from them. And that... Yeah, yeah like, like lower customer service costs and still making a lot of profit kind of a thing. Right. And so I don't frame this as a war. I think like for the most part, fintechs are probably small bit players. 
still in the deposits war. <laughs> um, again, I like I I know I'm a banking and fintech editor, but I think banks are probably pretty okay. Yeah, you can't say fintech is a bit player. Like that doesn't work with no. Your I think that no? in the war, these are interesting trends to think about the capturing of a younger demographic of consumers. How these consumers will approach banking relationships as they grow older. Yeah. What they'll be seeking from a bank that might meet their needs as they become more sophisticated when they need any other banking product, they will probably have to go to a bank, right? Well, and and, and it, that gets directly to how many of these fintech companies can make the transition to being full service banks, right? And like we've seen that that's not easy, right? I mean, it's a short list. It's SoFi, it's Varo, it's Lending Club, it's maybe one or two others, but like it's not a big list. And we see a lot of very successful neobanks that are, were on Ron's list, right? Like a PayPal, Chime, a lot of companies like that that are picking up a lot of these accounts, but they're not banks. And so like their ability to serve a broader set of needs and to really fully monetize these young customers as they grow older, right now it's limited. That's not to say that they won't be able to acquire a bank charter or kind of make that jump. But like to, to pick on Varo, just as one example, they got a bank charter and so far they haven't really been able to like navigate that transition. Now, not to say that they won't be able to, but it's not a slam dunk that that's going to go well, nor is it a slam dunk that regulators are just going to keep signing off on fintech companies becoming banks. Yeah, I think checking accounts are just a little stayed. And it was so interesting to bring up like, you know, financial, you know, fintechs that are like seen as really innovative. And like, we're all just fighting over like the most boring of, of the bank <laughs> products. And so I would encourage everyone to have that apply that like second order thinking of like, okay, well, what's next on this? Because it just, I can't tell you how little I interact with my checking accounts. They are just, they're the money hotel. And I think most banks have, most banks, if they don't have that understanding, are happy to not have a customer who thinks of her checking account as a money hotel mm -hmm. and, and cares about a lot of other bank products and puts attention on those. Yeah, I think, I mean, that to, to sort of put a, a bow on that point, I think that's the core thing that I'm really curious about. And Ron referenced this in his article talking about the fact that a lot of these accounts, so to speak, that are being offered by fintech companies are really not like traditional checking accounts. They do a lot more. They have other features built into them. And I think that's kind of the core question I have is if you're a, just a consumer and you're thinking about like, who is my primary financial provider? Not my primary checking account provider, but just my primary financial provider. Which account do you have to have and which features does that account have to have to sort of establish that primary position? And it's, to your point, it's probably not a traditional checking account that a bank has offered because those, let's be honest, they kind of suck. They don't really do much. Yeah, they right? suck. It's just, and literally money goes in, money goes out, you make payments. It's not anything special. I think fintech's belief is that a more modernized, expanded version of that could be the home base for having a primary relationship with customers. Whereas to your point, a lot of banks, I think, sort of think, well, it's more about the scope of all the products we offer right. and the brand associated with that breadth of product. Yeah. And the sort of competing vision there is really interesting to me. I mean, yeah, it is interesting. But the, at the same time, it's just not, you can't just stick stock trading onto a checking account. Those are two different accounts and they have like, different rules and like you abs like absolutely like that is you know because you ever like see it's like you can lose money like and a bank account explicitly you you should not be losing money if it's under the insure limit i have written about that many times in my newsletter and that's like i you know to me like go play that game fintechs like you yeah. that is your lesson to learn i 
get wanting to have different features and access. And I think there is some innovation that can be applied to the checking account. And I'm curious. I just don't think that's the realm of fintechs. But if a bank wants to tackle it, again, these are just loss leaders. Checking accounts are loss leaders. They cost banks a lot of money and they don't make money unless you're like, I guess, under 10 billion. And so it'll be really interesting to see, you know, kind of the next order of you got this checking account. Now, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to make money? How are you going to keep this consumer as their needs change? Yeah. And they grow to be more sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's uh, to, to put it back in the context of the original article. You might have won the battle, but the war is much larger and ongoing. Yeah, yeah. War for deposits is not. I don't. Need, I don't think fintechs are a big player in the actual war for deposits right now. Fair. Money market funds would like a word. Yeah, so. yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, um, that I think covers plenty of ground. Kia, it was delightful to restart Bank Nerd Corner with you. I really appreciate you hopping on as always. And as we said at the top, hopefully not too much has changed by the time folks hear this, and we'll be back again next month. All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.